there's a cave in southern Indonesia that contains a remarkable discovery. Lining the yellow limestone walls are ghostly impressions of hands stenciled in faded brown paint. According to carbon dating, the people who made them have been dead for 40,000 years. But their handprints remain, reaching out across the millennia to ours. Today, if I wanted to save a picture of my hand, I'd have a few more options than trekking to the nearest cave with a bucket of ochre. We've got hard drives and discs, but these would usually only last a decade or so. And, even if we don't want to store things for thousands of years, when it comes to data storage, we have a big problem. The issue is basically that, you know, we're, we're accumulating data more and more over time, exponentially more. This is Nicholas Geis, a research scientist at the Georgia Tech Research Institute. Currently, uh, like in one month, we have something like 200 exabytes of, of data flowing across the internet, an exabyte being 10 to the 18 bytes, so a million terabyte hard drives. The problem we're running into is that you know, for many years, our, our storage technology for, for storing this digital data has, has sort of kept up with that exponential increase in the data production. Uh, you know, people are familiar with Moore's Law, right? The idea of doubling number of transistors on a chip every couple of years. So advances like that is what's allowed us to go from, you know, something like a floppy disk, which 30 years ago could store a megabyte, to, you know, my USB key, which now has a terabyte, right? A factor of a million in, in a couple decades. We're running into the physical limits of the fabrication technologies needed to put, you know, transistors very close together on, on silicon chips. And so in order to keep up with data demand, we need really sort of entirely new storage technologies, a, a different paradigm for storing data. Or we have to make hard choices about what data we, we store in the long term. All this data we're creating is piling up. According to some estimates, by the year 2040, we'll have three septillion bits of data. That's a trillion trillion, and we won't have enough silicon to store it on. What's worse, these storage centers are enormous, ravenous for energy and generating so much heat, they sometimes need to be kept underwater. We desperately need solutions to both reduce the materials and space our data is using and to ensure our most valuable data will last. So this time, join me, Lucy Johnston, as I explore two very different ways scientists are trying to solve our data crisis and creating a legacy that could reach people thousands of years into the future. You're listening to Future Lab, the podcast, brought to you by Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed. First off, let's meet Peter Kazansky. In Peter's office in the University of Southampton, where he's a professor of physics, he has an unusual collection of small glass cubes. But we promise it will last forever. This is one of the main promises. These cubes, about the size of a walnut, don't look like much at first, but if you zoom deep down to nanoscopic scales, 
you would see a wealth of information. We um, discovered and um, pioneered new field of ultrafast laser nanostructuring with uh, ultrashoot light pulses in transparent materials. And this research led to discovery of so-called Superman memory crystal, which now holds uh, the world uh, Guinness uh, record as the most durable data storage medium. Perhaps ironically, Peter is using glass as the world's most durable storage material. At, uh, at 180 degrees centigrade temperature, it could last for the duration of uh, our universe. And having a material that, under the right storage conditions, can virtually last forever, has left Peter with some big questions about what data we should be preserving and whether he might be able to prove Stephen Hawking wrong about time travel. The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. Over the course of this series, we'll be introducing a range of tests available at Randox Health, which have been made possible through their revolutionary biochip technology. Scientists at Randox knew early on that some individuals infected by the COVID-19 virus experience symptoms for longer than a typical COVID infection. This post-COVID-19 syndrome is now known as Long COVID. Long COVID is defined as the ongoing symptoms after a COVID-19 infection, which can persist beyond 12 weeks after an infection. As of December 2021, the Office for National Statistics has estimated that 1.3 million people in the UK have been suffering from long COVID symptoms. That translates to nearly 2% of the British population. This number is expected to rise after the significant increase in COVID infections observed since the emergence of the Omicron variant. Long COVID is not limited to those who experience severe illness at the time of their infection, but can impact those who experienced mild COVID-19 infections. Long COVID symptoms range from fatigue to shortness of breath, change in taste and or smell, cough, chest pain, and more. Currently, 64% of long COVID sufferers have said their symptoms have limited their ability to perform daily activities. Randox has created a new panel of tests for those experiencing persistent symptoms. We'll be back later in the episode to tell you more about Randox's new long COVID health assessment. But for now, back to the Future Lab podcast. Before we get to the sci-fi implications of Peter's Forever Cubes, let's go back two decades to when he first discovered this new technique. He was, as physicists often are, experimenting with lasers. Lasers are used for cutting, drilling, a lot of things. And people start using ultra-fast lasers, which generate very short pulses. And these lasers can be used for very precise machining. One example, for example, is laser surgery. Peter and his team were exploring how tiny, short pulses of lasers would change the properties of silicon glass. And then, uh, during one of our experiments, we unexpectedly observed a very strange phenomenon. Example of serendipity, something uh, which is uh, not expected, but uh, uh, very interesting. Something strange had happened. When they looked through a very powerful microscope, they could see tiny structures had formed. We suggested maybe very tiny, very uh, small structures are produced, very small, much smaller than wavelengths of light. It's normally, you can, you can imagine it produces like holes or voids. 
For example, in, a, in laser surgery, light is focused in a very small spot, and uh, in, in this small spot, high intensity is generated, and uh, this produces uh, absorption of light anyway, and uh, then it uh, can produce some very tiny micro-explosion. So, these super-fast pulses in the laser had caused microscopic structures to form in the glass. And what was really exciting to the team was that they could control these structures by changing the wavelength of light. A little bit later, we tried also understand how this uh, new phenomenon can be used. And then we suggested maybe this could be used for data storage. By using lasers to create these structures, they can write data into the glass. And then, by shining a light through them, they can read the data back. We observed that these voids have internal structure, even smaller, uh, with, with smaller features. With features as small as 20 nanometers, so it was very also quite interesting. They were not just random, but they were oriented. Because the structures are tiny, only about the size of half a bacteria, they can write a lot of information in a small space. What's more, the way they can change the polarization means another layer of information can also be packed into the same volume. For data storage, we can write density of writing comparable to Blu-ray disks, which is about 45 gigabytes. So in total, in uh, one uh, optical 5D data storage disk, we can fit about 8,000 Blu-rays, which translates finally into 360 terabytes of data. So 8,000 times denser than a Blu-ray. But the real excitement is in how long these could last. Their durability, that, uh, which is very important, and because we produce the structures in silica glass or quartz glass, which is very durable and stable material, which can uh, easily hit to 1,000 degrees without any degradation. At room temperature can uh, survive up to 300 quintillion years, quintillions, billion, billion years. And ancient people, they used stone chisel to engrave uh, paintings and yes, the most ancient paintings, they're still made by some kind of instruments like a chisel. We use uh, a laser like a chisel. Although it's not indestructible. Glass is quite a stable material, but obviously if you hit it with a stone or with a hammer, you can break it. So obviously then uh, if you don't hit it <laughs> with, with a hammer, it, it will uh, survive. And once you've lasered the information into the glass, it doesn't need any energy to preserve it. Data centers consume about more than 10% of global energy, so-called data storage. You don't need any power to maintain this. While Peter sees obvious benefits to this in terms of saving energy and creating durable storage for places like libraries and archives running out of space, there might be even bigger implications. It's a fun thought experiment. What happens if you can send messages millions of years into the future? Here's we're going to the ground of a little bit science fiction, a little bit, yeah? But it's possible, uh, we develop technology of communicating with the future. If we believe the documents which we can uh, write, they will last well, virtually forever, yes? Then uh, it's possible to suggest that some of them will be found in very distant future. And uh, uh, maybe in a thousand years, maybe in hundred thousand, even a million years, in a way, then they'll be interested maybe to understand who created these documents. And maybe they will decide to contact us, so from a very distant uh, future. 
99% of my time is spent writing papers, scientifically proven, <laughs> without all these kind of stories. But obviously, it's, it's interesting sometimes to think that uh, if uh, uh, crystals will be strong enough to su- survive, to, <laughs> that maybe in, somebody in the future will try to communicate with us. Let's take as an example Stephen Hawking's rather lonely time traveler party. Some time ago, he tried to organize uh, this uh, party for time travelers. In 2009, he sent out plenty of invites to his champagne and balloon-filled party at a college in Cambridge. But no one came. The twist was, he'd sent the invites out after the party. So he written on a piece of paper invitation for time travellers and he divided them afterwards, yes? Hawkins' plan was that if no one attended, this would be some semi-serious evidence time travel didn't exist. Because who could say no to a party with the professor himself? Nobody managed to, to, to read this, his invitation. So no one turned up to see Hawking's banner, which read, Welcome Time Travellers. And he presumably drank a lot of champagne on his own. But Peter reasons, perhaps Hawking's experiment had a flaw. Those invites were only written on paper. A normal piece of paper will su- survive maybe, well, typically 500 years. So maybe in 500 years, time trail was not uh, invented. So that's why nobody came to his party. But if we will write an invitation on our glass, uh, then there is a possibility that maybe we can, somebody will knock on the door. So maybe Peter's party will have a few more guests. In the meantime, they're working on getting writing speeds up and making reading automatic. So there's a way to go before this is commonplace, but they've already chosen some works to try and preserve forever. One of these cubes even headed off into space in Elon Musk's red Tesla, containing the works of visionary sci-fi author Isaac Asimov. The first thing uh, we tried to store, it's, uh, no, it's not surprising, it was the Bible. And then followed by Declaration obviously, of Human Rights. They were um, symbolic. Obviously, the, uh, the amount of data was not very big. So Peter's cubes are here to stay, and he's busy preserving the legacies he thinks are important. But he's not the only one working on this. After the break, we'll hear about a completely different style of storage. One that's inside you right now. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Randox has been working on a range of tests that can help evaluate the likelihood of long COVID in those suffering with symptoms 4 to 12 weeks after exposure. The long COVID health assessment was developed by a team of researchers at Randox to target multiple areas of the body, including the kidneys, heart, liver and thyroid, as well as tests for immune function and inflammation. The results of these tests are then fed into an algorithm which assigns the patient to one of three categories – low, moderate or high likelihood of long COVID. The algorithm also considers their COVID-19 history, including previous positive PCR results, the presence of antibodies and blood results that may show evidence of immune dysfunction or organ damage. COVID-19 continues to spread across the population. So tests like the Long COVID Health Assessment can contribute valuable information about the recovery process after a COVID-19 infection. As we learn more about Long COVID, doctors will be able to help patients manage their chronic symptoms and prevent any further damage. 
If you're interested in scheduling an appointment or want to learn more about the long COVID health assessment, visit www.randoxhealth.com for more information. We just heard about how lasered silicon glass provides a durable data storage solution. But what if the solution to high-density data storage had already been taken care of by nature itself? What if the best way to store data is in DNA? Back to Nick Geis, who we heard from earlier in the episode. You know, the human genome has something like 3 billion base pairs of DNA. So... For several decades, people had the idea that if we could, you know, harness that power of DNA, we could use it to store information. DNA is our biological code, but it's still data. So why not use it to write our own data? It's really inspired by biology. If you think about what DNA does in our bodies, it's basically our biological information storage medium. It's, it's storing all your genetic information in, in each one of your cells. And so DNA has sort of evolved over time to be this very information-dense way to store large, large amounts of information. So the the reason DNA is getting a lot of attention as as a storage medium, there's actually a couple. The first is its density. Given that the entire instruction manual to build you is written into every single cell in your body, it makes sense that DNA can get a lot of information down in a very small amount of space. The sort of fundamental information density of DNA is orders of magnitude higher than something like a magnetic tape or a hard drive on your computer. We're really storing data at the molecular levels. Then there's the environmental benefits. As we said before, data centers can use up enormous amounts of energy. DNA just needs to sit there as a little pink glob. A big advantage of using DNA for for an archive is you would have sort of the energy cost of writing it once in the first place. But then once it's there, you could leave it almost indefinitely without the the regular maintenance cost and the power involved in, in maintaining your big storage facility and refreshing it instead of drives that have to be replaced every five or ten years to prevent degradation. And while it doesn't last quite as long as Peter's cubes, DNA can still stick around for millennia. Right. It, it was, I think it was in the news earlier this year, um, people having an idea to, to basically bring woolly mammoths back from extinction by using mammoth DNA that's been successfully sequenced from, you know, specimens frozen in a tundra for close to 10,000 years. And a final benefit, DNA is a universal code to all life on Earth. That means it's fairly likely we'll always have technology that can read it. With current technologies, you have to worry about things becoming obsolete, right? Can, can computers of the future read the sort of drives that we have today? But with DNA, I mean, as long as people are around and are made of DNA, we'll, we'll have technology to, to sequence DNA. But how does it work? To write your data, you basically 3D print DNA strands and set the desired letter combination. With DNA's four letters, G, C, T and A, instead of the traditional ones and zeros. One of our partners on the program is a company, Twist Bioscience, which is one of the leading commercial suppliers of DNA. They have a technology for inkjet printing uh, DNA on the surface of a silicon chip at very high density. Nick and his team are working on getting this writing density even higher and on how to print the DNA and read it back in a cost-effective way. So we need to find a way to, to make that write and read speed much faster and and much more cost-efficient. Nick sees DNA as a potential solution for big companies looking to cut data storage costs. 
the main interest in DNA data storage is, is from industries who are in the business of storing large amounts of people's data for a long time. So, you know, places like uh, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, these companies already maintain these sort of exabyte scale data farms. And what these look like is, is basically warehouses that have, you know, racks and racks of, of magnetic tape drives. They have to be kept cold enough. They take a lot of power to operate. And these things can cost on the order of, you know, $10 million a year sort of operating maintenance cost. Admittedly today, it's still very expensive to write and read DNA compared to, compared to just going out and getting a hard drive. But if you're thinking about a, a very long-term archival application, the sort of lifetime cost of DNA storage we think could be competitive. You know, if you want to access your data frequently and, you know, see your photos every day, you, you probably don't want to store it in DNA. But if you have something that you want to, to keep and be able to access, um, you know, pull out every once in a while and still have it available 10, 20 years from now, then you might be willing to pay for the, you know, premium DNA storage service. And that sort of thing, I would speculate, would be available within... I'll say 10 years. One application uh, that we've been thinking about for DNA is if you ever want to, you know, move the entire contents of the internet to the moon or something like that, or, or even not to the moon, but to, I don't know, an underwater base or something that has no internet connection, this is one of the, the ways you could imagine doing it because, you know, you're not going to send that over a Wi-Fi connection. But a big feature of DNA is that it can change. It's how evolution happens. It's why viruses can morph and avoid our immune systems. So, what if the DNA data mutates? It's an interesting question to think about how robust DNA storage is over a long time. Do we have to worry about errors creeping in or new viruses evolving from the DNA we store or something like that? We're not particularly worried about making pathogens or something out of DNA that we store digitally. The reason for that is that DNA that's stored for, for data purposes, it, it comes in these uh, short sequences. For comparison, the shortest sort of viral genome is, you know, a few uh, kilobases. Uh, something like COVID, I think, is in the 20 to 30 kilobase range. And then for bacteria, you have something like a million bases. Something we do worry about with, with storing data in DNA is, is the effect of errors. An error in the DNA is like an error in a file, which could make the data unreadable. So they need to build a lot of slack into the system to make sure errors are accounted for. We build in some error correction, so it's robust to a certain amount of errors. So what would Nick store if he could preserve something for far future generations? I don't know, being a uh, science nerd, the first thing I would send is probably, you know, catalogs of Star Trek episodes or something like that which, you know, I worry would be lost to time otherwise. Things like our photos and videos and, and even digital video files now, which, you know, are, are unplayable, like, like old home movies that already are, are difficult to play unless you've gone through the various conversion steps from, from tape to, to DVD to digital files. I think a lot of, you know, what we currently consider entertainment will be lost to time and would be very amusing for a future civilization to see if we could send something like that forward. So in the future, we'll be able to save our mountains of data, whether it's cat photos or encyclopedias, so that it lives long and prospers through time. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed. I'm Lucy Johnston. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying this series of Future Lab, please take a moment to follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. 
It really helps new listeners find the show. Thank you.